I'm Paige Waterhouse. And I'm Nabil Rosa. From the Cavalier Daily, this is On Record. This episode of On Record may contain material that is sensitive or triggering to some listeners. Topics related to sexual assault and sexual violence will be discussed. Please know that on-call counselors are available through UVA Counseling and Psychological Services 24 hours a day at 434-243-5150. If you have any concerns about or would like to report gender-based or interpersonal violence, please visit virginia.edu slash justreportit. Anyone may directly report to the Title IX office by phone to 434-297-7988 by email to Title IX coordinator at virginia.edu or in person at the Title IX office at O'Neill Hall. Reports also may be made to a responsible employee, such as a dean on call, a resident advisor, or a faculty member. The university has had a complicated and often public history of handling Title IX cases most prominent of which was the Rolling Stone article, whose accusations prompted a larger conversation about the culture at UVA and the Title IX process here. Last semester, Abby Klukey, former managing editor, wrote for the Cavalier Daily about the experience of an 18-year-old high school student who was allegedly assaulted by a university student. Klukey wrote an article concerning the high school student's experience and her struggles with the Title IX process. So after the alleged assault, the high school student had to decide what to do as far as a legal or administrative process. In the Commonwealth of Virginia, there are two options for completing a rape kit. There's an anonymous blind rape kit in which evidence is collected and held if someone decides to open an investigation at a later date, or there's an immediate investigation at the time that the rape kit is collected and the hospital immediately notifies law enforcement. Past those legal processes, there's the university's Title IX process, which is handled within the school. So the university also has a Title IX process that investigates sexual assault and other gender-based violence relating to university students. And this investigation is an internal process handled by an office of the university and typically um, follows a 60-day rule for the length of investigations, meaning that investigations are going to take um, a couple months in general. In this instance, the investigation was notable not only because of of sort of the circumstances, but also because of the length. This investigation continued on for several months and culminated in a lawsuit in which it was ruled that Title IX did not have standing because the reporting student was not a university student. And even though Title IX found the alleged assaulter responsible of the sexual assault, um, no action was taken. So for more detail on this, you're very much encouraged to check out Abby's article in the Cab Daily, where she goes into uh, much more detail and did an incredible job investigating and reporting this. This article kind of brought up more questions about how the university deals with Title IX allegations and sexual assaults in general. Which is the whole purpose of us doing this podcast, to kind of dive into how the university deals with these cases. So the Title IX law protects people from discrimination based on sex in education systems or federally funded programs. The law states that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And this ranges from anything from having women's sports teams to issues of gender-based discrimination and violence. 
So to speak to us more about the Title IX process at the university, we have the director of the Maxine Platzer Lynn Women's Center here at the university, Abby Palco. And Claire Kaplan, who also works at the center as the program director for gender violence and social change. I'm Abby Palco. I'm the director of the Maxine Platzer Lynn Women's Center. I'm Claire Kaplan, and I'm the program director for the gender violence and social change program. I guess we'll just get started on this episode of Paige and I are looking into the Title IX adjudication process. Just to start off, could either of you speak to, in general, what that process looks like from report um, through adjudication and finding? The way the Title IX process gets started is through a report through the Just Report It website or a direct contact in some way. Um, it could also happen if um, someone talks to a faculty member or someone who's not confidential and they would be required to report. So it may be that a student tells a professor with the knowledge that it would eventually be noti- they would be notified and then um, that report goes to the Title IX office and they look at the information, they follow up with um, either the faculty member or whoever it was who made the report, and um, if they can, the student um, to get more information. And that goes to a, um, a small group of people, three people who um, they meet a couple of times a week and they look over the reports to see if there's anything in that report that they need to take super fast immediate action on. Um, if there's some kind of danger, in, um, immediate danger. So they always look at that first, and they get back to the student, ask if they would like to come in or they would like to meet, would they like to take any other action, and so on. So let's say um, the student wants to explore that. Then they will meet with the, somebody from Title IX, and um, they'll find out. They'll be given a po- copy of the policy and what, what all that entails. Um, one slight step prior to that, if they don't, want to talk with Title IX right away and aren't sure and want to explore their options is they could talk to someone like me um, because I'm a confidential advocate, so I don't have to report. I can explain all this to them. I won't hand them thick copies of policy, but I'll tell them where they can find it and um, give them general information, So, um, including other options besides that. So at any rate, um, the Title IX folks will explain what their options are also in, in addition to what they do. For example, reporting to the police or counseling options and so on. And then if they say, yeah, I want to do something, um, then um, their case will be assigned to an investigator. And then the investigator sort of takes over the case at that point and will meet with them uh, probably more than once um, to get as much information as possible will um, meet with the um, what they call the respondent, who is the student who, or who's been accused, or respondents if there's more than one. And they will um, meet with them as well. They get names of witnesses from both and try to get in touch with those folks, get reports from them. So you can imagine this all takes time. There's a sort of a time limit within which they're supposed to get this done, but it's nearly impossible. And then um, that, that takes a bit of time for the investigator to go through and they come up with a preliminary report, and that is sent to the parties involved to look over. There's no um, decision in that report. It's a preliminary one. And then uh, the investigator will then come up with a final report, which will say, based on this evidence, um, it's my conclusion that uh, standards of conduct were violated in this way um, and or not. You know, or there's just not enough here to come up with a finding. 
and then that's then both people have a chance to to contest the finding, whatever way that that finding is. So um, they can contest it, and then there's a um, an in person hearing with a panel of faculty who will affirm the finding and make a decision about a sanction. That's the most formal process there is, but there are informal processes also that people can opt for. A lot of people don't want to do all that. Uh, they're just not ready for it. One option students have is to do nothing. I mean, that's always an option. Or to um, simply seek out um, counseling or some kind of emotional support. And often that's what people opt for at the beginning because they're just not in the state of mind to think about dealing with big systems. The other, another option is to report this to law enforcement, um, and some have opted for that. Some cases are actually reported by the Title IX office to law enforcement because they are required by law to do that if what the, the information they receive um, meets a kind of a standard, usually um, of a felony. So they will um, pass it along to the commonwealth attorney um, or to law enforcement who will circle back to the student and check in with them and see if they want to pursue something. Because in Virginia, a, a person who is a victim in a crime, a sexual, sexually violent crime, it's the only one where they can do this, they can actually say they don't want to participate or be part of that, and they will drop the case. It's important to know that when... Um, in a criminal case of sexual violence, the victim is a witness. They don't bring the case. The Commonwealth brings the case. Um, one Another option people have is actually suing. They can do a civil suit. To clarify, what does the university define as falling under the purview of Title IX versus any other adjudicative process? Uh, well, um, it's... Anything that's sexual misconduct, and you can find that in the policy, and there's a whole list of things. So it's sexual assault, um, which includes rape. That's one category. Under sexual assault, there's intimate partner violence, sexual exploitation, and it's sort of the kitchen sink. So there's everything that falls under sexual exploitation, ranging from um, kind of uh, cyber abuse, taking pictures against you know, without someone's permission, posting them, that kind of thing, all the way through um, prostituting someone or exposing them to a sexually transmitted infection when you knew you had it and you didn't tell them. All the way, and then there's um, stalking. Um, so all those things fall under that. It sounds like there's a lot more complications if a student were to go directly through UPD rather than through the Title IX with the issue of the Commonwealth having to bring the case versus the victim bringing the case. Would you say that more students choose the option to go through UPD versus Title IX and which one seems to be a more successful option for students? Well, one is not exclusive of the other. So it's really important for students to understand they can do any of those things. The difference between a Title IX process and going to the police, and it wouldn't necessarily be university police. If they're in Charlottesville, it'd be Charlottesville police. But a student can do any or all of these things. So the Title IX process is going to be faster, even though it may seem like it takes forever. Criminal cases, if they go to trial, which is unusual, but if they go to trial, it could be two years. Because there are continuances, there's lawyers involved, you know, stuff gets dragged out, and the survivor has no control over that. Um, with um, Title IX, they have to get it done within a certain period of time. And Title IX is also a civil process. It's not a criminal process. So um, the 
the way evidence is evaluated, what sanctions are, all this is really uh, about how the university wants its community to be, what kind of standards that the university expects all members of the community to adhere to. And it's not about, are you going to jail, right? So, um, which is, requires a very high standard, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, whereas here uh, for Title IX, it's preponderance of evidence. And one advantage, um, for lack of a better word, um, one advantage to going through the Title IX process here as opposed to going to the police is if the survivor needs accommodations on grounds. Part of the focus or in deciding which one to go if, if the student is choosing between the two avenues is what's their ultimate goal at the end. Is it that there are supports they need put in place to enable them to stay and finish the semester and come back? Or is it having a, a sense of needing to get justice through going through the criminal courts? And as Claire said, they can prioritize one, the other, or both at the same time. So um, are there any improvements that you think the university can make to this process? And if so, um, how do we go about it? So the really tricky thing is that we've been waiting for, I don't even know how long, for new guidelines from the Department of Education. Um, and the university is working within the parameters established by the DOE and the Dear Colleague letter from 2011 and 14. Um, just real quick, could you clarify what the Dear Colleague letters are? Title IX is um, part of... Um, Higher Education Act or, or Department of Education law. It's very simple. Basically, it says you can't discriminate against people on the basis of sex in education, and people have the right to you know their education. It's really it's like you know a couple of sentences. So then, what does that mean? So it's up to the the folks in the Department of Education to interpret it and to provide regulations on how you're supposed to uphold that law. So these, what they call the Dear Colleague Letters, uh, the, you know, the XX of the Higher Education Act or whatever it is, you know, um, we um, have established these regulations and rules on how you're supposed to implement it. And then for the next 10 pages, um, they tell you what you're supposed to do. So each one was different. There was one in 2011, and then there was one in 2014. And then we had a presidential election, and everything changed. There hasn't been a new letter yet. We've been waiting for a year and a half, more or less. Um, so when I get a question like that, because you're not the first person to ask me that, um, my answer is really it's a bigger problem than UVA. Um, and how we as a country, a globe for the moment, I'll just deal with our country. How we handle this issue is something that, you know, in the last two years, we've started to talk about a lot more with the rise, the attention to the Me Too movement. It didn't start two years ago, started before then. Um, we're paying more attention to it, but we still don't, and this we is the United States, still don't have a good answer. I would say I can't think of any system that adequately addresses these kinds of, these forms of violence, whether it's sexual violence or intimate partner violence, stalking. If you look at the criminal justice system, if you look at um, the timeline process, 
Um, when you talk to people who've been doing this work for a long time, um, I've talked to a couple of people even recently say, I'm ready to burn the whole thing down and start from scratch. I mean, that's sort of the feeling people have because it does not work. I've talked to survivors. I mean, who the women who testified at the, you know, the Weinstein trial went through horrible experience doing that I mean it was worth it for them but the whole way that thing worked was really inadequate and um, the fact that it took you know 20 years for anybody to be able to have a trial and and that's just one example um, there is uh, there are people who are working to try to figure out their ways of addressing this um, restorative justice programs for example or other kinds of programs um, Certain communities are not going to avail themselves of these systems because they already have very natural suspicion of any kind of adjudicative process that has been more oppressive to them than helpful. So if you look at all of that, um, the Title IX process is, is what it is, and it's, um, it's what we've got, and it's federally mandated, so there we are. Um, but there's plenty that could be done to improve it, but it may not fit the kinds of laws and regulations that, that exist right now in the books. So, um, yeah, and people are trying to figure all that out, but I haven't seen any good answers. As you were talking about, I was thinking, even the fact that the way we go about addressing this issue is through Title IX, which is an, a section of an educational law intended to ensure that everyone has equal access to education, particularly women. Um, you know, that was a, a savvy move on the part of students to help um, create safer environments on college campuses when that work started. Um, but the fact that it's that sideways entrance in is evidence that we as a country don't take this seriously enough. Thanks to Ms. Palco for speaking to us. For the past month, Patrick Roney, senior writer for the Cavalier Daily, has been closely following the Honor General Body meetings in which they've been discussing Honor's guidelines, specifically regarding Title IX cases at UVA. University student Mackenzie Williams published an article for the Virginia Review of Politics concerning the experience of a sexual assault survivor who presented her case to Title IX. After alleged lying occurred in the Title IX investigation, she brought her case to Honor. After Honor dropped the case, the survivor appeared in front of the council to give comment as they debated the new procedure. So the Honor Council formalized their new policy on how they're going to deal with violations arising from Title IX investigations at their general body meeting on February 2nd, 2020. The new policy is as follows. The Honor Committee will dismiss any report of alleged honor offense if the university's Title IX coordinator deems the conduct alleged in the honor report was previously adjudicated, requiring honor to consult with Title IX prior to investigating. However, honor can also override the coordinator's decision through a unanimous executive board vote if it believes that the coordinator misapplied the definition of previous adjudication. So before this, Honor had no guidelines on how to deal with cases arising out of Title IX. And the reason this policy is put in place is because if... No, well, mostly if it's because in the Title IX documents, mm -hmm. it says that everything is 
covered under the honor code. Right. So therefore, if something, if there was an alleged violation of the honor code, like any investigative process here, you basically like, instead of swearing on a Bible or like swearing under perjury, you swear by the honor code. So yeah, technically any lies during any investigation are honor offenses. So then if there was a lie in the case, it could be reported to honor. Yes. And or, or if someone believed there was a lie. Yeah. They would have to see the case. And um, before this new policy, they had no guidelines on how to deal with these cases. The vote results included 16 members in support, six opposed, and one abstaining. Uh, those in favor of the policy generally vo- voiced confidence in UVA's Title IX office and its process. But critics of the policy saw it as an abdication of honor's responsibility, with honor rep from the law school Stephen Paul saying, quote, in my view, the effect of this policy as it's written is to basically give students who are providing evidence to Title IX a free pass as far as honor is concerned, to lie or misrepresent facts for their benefit or for the benefit of parties in the investigation or proceeding, unquote. In January of 2020, the Cavalier Daily Editorial Board wrote a piece in which they stated some dissatisfaction with the honor proceedings. They did agree that honor should not necessarily be hearing these cases, but they saw a larger issue in the fact that these cases were arising to honor instead of being properly adjudicated within the Title IX system. The main argument is that Title IX is failing its students and honor should not have to mitigate Title IX's shortcomings. We're now going to hear from Noah Strike, who is an opinion writer for the Cavalier Daily, who recently published an article about what the university has changed since the publication of the Rolling Stone article in 2014. Welcome back, Noah. This is your third time on? Fourth? Third or fourth. Yeah. Wow. Always a pleasure. Um, So, you know, this week we're covering the heavy but important topic of um, Title IX investigations at the university. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, at the beginning of February, you published an editorial called What's Changed Since Rolling Stone, um, Not Enough. Yes. Can you talk to me about what prompted you to write that? Yeah. So I believe it was at the start of December, the SIVA Weekly published a cover story asking the question, what has or hasn't changed at UVA since the Rolling Stone article in 2014? And I read it, overviewed the changes that have been made and the work that's left to do, And then in light of a number of sexual assaults that were reported in the same weekend in early February, I decided to reply to the Civil Weekly's cover story and answer the question and say, not enough has changed, clearly, if, you know, we can have multiple sexual assaults reported in the same weekend. But yeah, I just wanted to respond to the Civil Weekly and talk about, from a student perspective, what has changed and what what work is still left to do. Sure. So talk about what you have seen change since 2014. I talked about how... Immediately after the Rolling Stone article came out, the university temporarily suspended Greek-like organizations. It overhauled the Title IX reporting and adjudication process, implemented a number of training modules and awareness events for first-year students like um, Green Dot and now uh, Who's Got Your Back. The Women's Center in CAPS received increasing increased funding. The LGBT Center in- received increased funding. And then over the course of the last few years, those initiatives have been expanded and improved upon yeah, and I think the culture of sexual assault at UVA or the culture about um, talking of, you know, talking about sexual assault and supporting survivors has really dramatically shifted in the last few years. Um, it's still stigmatized, but to a lesser extent than it has been in the past. Um, and overall, I think students have done a good job raising awareness and supporting survivors. Um, not to say that we've achieved the goal, but um, certainly have made good progress. 
Sure. Do you believe awareness campaigns like Green Dot and now Who's Got Your Back do an adequate job of informing the incoming student body, or do you think that more needs to be done during summer orientation and other onboarding things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Green Dot and Who's Got Your Back do a good job of raising awareness for first-year students and sort of making sure that they know, you know, basics about consent and, you know, bystander intervention and everything. I think more of an emphasis should be placed on Green Dot and Who's Got Your Back during orientation weekends. And I believe I mentioned this in the column, but also currently students only have to do the sexual assault module on CIS twice in their time at the university, their first semester, first year, and their first semester, third year. I suggest that make that like a semesterly thing. So you have to do it at the start of every semester because twice in four years isn't really enough to, in my opinion, make sure that the information is distributed widely enough and retained by students. Um, So let's talk about what hasn't changed and what needs to change. What are the biggest issues you see? A lot. (laughs) So I mentioned this in the column as well, but the Office of Health Promotion currently only has one program coordinator for prevention for sexual assault and gender-based violence. Other universities at similar levels have dedicated teams of people. So just the staff working on this issue needs to be expanded. One person responsible for, what, 20,000 students and ensuring that everyone is knowledgeable about consent and bystander intervention and preventing sexual assault certainly is not enough. <laughs> it also, I mean, it's a very frequent discourse on grounds, but caps and how inaccessible it can be, the staff and space restrictions associated with it, the limits on the number of sessions people can have, all of that needs to be addressed, of course. The university's incident reporting form, of course, requires a net badge login. It's no longer anonymous. That can deter a lot of survivors from filing reports. And just generally speaking, continuing to put resources into survivor support and prevention. So this is not something you touch upon in the article, but do you have any thoughts on um, Honor's recent decision? Uh, It's a tough one. I still am a very strong believer that students do not have the experience or capability at any special status or agency organization level to review and adjudicate anything related to Title IX, whether or not it's an actual assault or whether or not it's, like in the case of honor, an honor offense stemming from a sexual assault. I know that concerns were raised by representatives uh, about how honor could be used as like a re-adjudication of Title IX, how um, respondents could abuse the honor system to like retaliate against the complainant or the reporter. So I think that the bylaw amendment was made in goodwill or in good faith, I guess. Like I said, I don't think students have the capability to adjudicate anything coming from Title IX, but I would encourage a reevaluation of this bylaw to sort of take a step back, slow down, figure out if this is really the best course of action for, for honor and then probably involve consultation with more administrators. I'm sure Honor talked with people at Odos and Title IX, uh, the Title IX coordinator specifically, about about this bylaw. But it's just such a nuanced issue that I don't think it can be resolved in a matter of weeks like it was at the start of this semester. Well, thanks as always, Noah. Um, great talking to you again. Yeah, no problem. Always a pleasure. Thank you to Noah for speaking with us. These issues of sexual assault continue to affect the university community with a recent report of sexual assault occurring just a couple weeks ago in early February. Recently appointed University Chief of Police Tim Longo sent an email warning the university community after the report was filed. Obviously, there's still a lot of issues arising out of Title IX investigations and how the university approaches them. We will be updating you and continuing to follow this issue with the Cavalier Daily. 
understand this has been a heavy episode, so we'd like to end on a slightly more positive note. Nabil, what's been on your mind this week? What's been on my mind this week is a little bit of self-promotion, but um, one of our news articles actually got picked up by the Washington Post this week. That's right. The article is written by first-year news staff writer Emma Scales, and our news editor, Ali Sullivan, sent the article to the Washington Post, and they picked it up. So go ahead and check it out. So the title of the Cavalier Daily article is German Visiting Professor Unable to Enter the U.S., Visa Delayed Indefinitely. And the Washington Post um, continued the reporting and published a piece entitled... This renowned German professor was headed to UVA to teach about the rise of far-right extremism. The State Department held up his visa. Basically, we're famous. This is Nabil Reza. And I'm Paige Waterhouse. This has been On Record. The Cavalier Daily recently underwent spring recruitment so we have some new staffers to introduce to you we're super excited to welcome them onto our team and we are looking forward to what new material we'll be producing for you on record is written by peyton guthrie abigail long jisoo park shreyas gulapalli and neela Kanaten. the show is produced by grace blue hardy and Ann williams our editor is nabil raza